Hello everybody, welcome back to Rob Reads 2, where we are reading Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Uh, in our last installment, Anne and Diana had uh, accidentally stumbled upon uh, the the elderly spinster who is 45, um, you know, so like six years older than me, so that's, that's nice. Um, um, anyway, Miss Lavender Lewis, who lives uh, in a little fairy tale cottage in the middle of the woods. Um, and has a uh, 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 mysterious past with Paul Irving's father, Stephen Irving. Uh, they were engaged at some point, and they broke it off. And, uh, you know, she obviously, she was eccentric and quirky, and, of course, she and Anne and Diana became fast friends. Uh, and that's uh, pretty much all that happened. Oh, and uh, uh, Davy and um, Dora, uh, their uncle that had been coming to get them passed away. So they're going to be staying at uh, Green Gables from now on. So, you know, if anybody cares about that. All right. So chapter 23, Miss Lavender's Romance. I think I'll take a walk through to Echo Lodge this evening, said Anne one Friday afternoon in December. It looks like snow, said Marilla dubiously. I'll be there before the snow comes and I mean to stay all night. Diana can't go because she has company, and I'm sure Miss Lavender will be looking for me tonight. It's a whole fortnight since I was there. Anne had paid many a visit to Echo Lodge since that October day. Sometimes she and Diana drove round by the road. Sometimes they walked through the woods. When Diana could not go, Anne went alone. Between her and Miss Lavender had sprung up one of those fervent, helpful friendships possible only between a woman who has kept the freshness of youth in her heart and soul and a girl whose imagination and intuition supplied the place of experience. Anne had at last discovered a real kindred spirit. I guess all those others, Diana and Matthew, were just fake kindred spirits? Yeah. Anne had at last discovered a real kindred spirit, while into the little lady's lonely, sequestered life of dreams, Anne and Diana came with the wholesome joy and exhilaration of the outer experience, which Miss Lavender, the world forgetting by the world forgot, had long ceased to share. They brought an atmosphere of youth and reality to the little stone house. Charlotta the Fourth always greeted them with her very widest smile, and Charlotta's smiles were fearfully wide, loving them for the sake of her adored mistress as well as for their own. Never had there been such hijinks held in the little stone house as were held there that beautiful late lingering autumn, when November seemed October over again, and even December aped the sunshine and hazes of summer. But on this particular day, it seemed as if December had remembered that it was time for winter, and it turned suddenly dull and brooding, with a windless hush predictive of coming snow. Nevertheless, Anne keenly enjoyed her walk through the great gray maze of the beechlands. Though alone, she never found it lonely. Her imagination peopled her path with merry companions, and with these she carried on a gay, pretended conversation that was wittier and more fascinating than conversations are apt to be in real life, where people sometimes fail most lamentably to talk up to the requirements. In a make-believe assembly of choice spirits, everybody says just the thing you want her to say, and so gives you the chance to say what just what you want to say. Attended by this invisible company, Anne traversed the woods and arrived at the fur lane just as broad, feathery flakes began to flutter down softly. At the first bend, she came upon Miss Lavender, standing under a big, broad-branching fir. She wore a gown of warm, rich red, 
and her head and shoulders were wrapped in a silvery-gray silk shawl. "'You look like the queen of the firwood fairies,' called Anne merrily. "'I thought you would come tonight, Anne,' said Miss Lavender, running forward. "'And I'm doubly glad, for Charlotta the Fourth is away. "'Her mother is sick, and she had to go home for the night. "'I should have been very lonely if you hadn't come. "'Even the dreams and the echoes wouldn't have been enough company. "'Oh, Anne, how pretty you are!' she added suddenly, "'looking up at the tall, slim girl with the soft rose flush of walking on her face.' How pretty and how young. It's so delightful to be seventeen, isn't it? I do envy you, concluded Miss Lavender candidly. But you are only seventeen at heart, smiled Anne. No, I'm old. Or rather middle-aged, which is far worse, sighed Miss Lavender. Sometimes I can pretend I'm not, but at other times I realize it. And I can't reconcile myself to it as most women seem to. I'm just as rebellious as I was when I discovered my first gray hair. Now, Anne, don't look as if you were trying to understand. Seventeen can't understand. I'm going to pretend right away that I am seventeen, too, and I can do it now that you are here. You always bring youth in your hand like a gift. We're going to have a jolly evening. Tea first? What do you want for tea? We'll have whatever you like. Do think of something nice and indigestible. There were sounds of riot and mirth in the little stone house that night. What with cooking and feasting and making candy and laughing and pretending, it is quite true that Miss Lavender and Anne comported themselves in a fashion entirely unsuited to the dignity of a spinster of forty-five and a sedate schoolma'am. Then, when they were tired, they sat down on the rug before the grate in the parlor, lighted only by the soft fireshine and perfumed deliciously by Miss Lavender's open rose jar on the mantel. The wind had risen, and was sighing and wailing around the eaves, and the snow was thudding softly against the windows, as if a hundred storm sprites were tapping for entrance. "'I'm so glad you're here, Anne,' said Miss Lavender, nibbling at her candy. "'If you weren't, I should be blue. Very blue. Almost navy blue. Dreams and make-believes are all very well in the daytime and the sunshine, but when dark and storm come, they fail to satisfy.' One wants real things, then. But you don't know this. Seventeen never knows it. At seventeen, dreams do satisfy, because you think the realities are waiting for you further on. When I was seventeen, Anne, I didn't think forty-five would find me a white-haired little old maid with nothing but dreams to fill my life. But you aren't an old maid, said Anne, smiling into Miss Lavender's wistful wood-brown eyes. Old maids are born. They don't become... Some are born old maids, some achieve old maidenhood, and some have old maidenhood thrust upon them, parodied Miss Lavender whimsically. You are one of those who have achieved it then, laughed Anne, and you've done it so beautifully that if every old maid were like you, they would come into the fashion, I think. I always like to do things as well as possible, said Miss Lavender meditatively, and since an old maid I had to be, I was determined to be a very nice one. People say I'm odd, but it's just because I follow my own way of being an old maid and refuse to copy the traditional pattern. And did anyone ever tell you anything about Stephen Irving and me? Yes, said Anne candidly. I've heard that you and he were engaged once. So we were. Twenty-five years ago. A lifetime ago. And we were to have been married the next spring. I had my wedding dress made. "'although nobody but Mother and Stephen ever knew that. 
We'd been engaged in a way almost all our lives, you might say. When Stephen was a little boy, his mother would bring him here when she came to see my mother. And the second time he ever came, he was nine and I was six. He told me out in the garden that he had pretty well made up his mind to marry me when he grew up. I remember that I said thank you, and when he was gone, I told my mother very gravely that there was a great weight off my mind, because I wasn't frightened any more about having to be an old maid. How poor mother laughed. And what went wrong? asked Anne breathlessly. We had just a stupid, silly, commonplace quarrel. So commonplace that, if you'll believe me, I don't even remember just how it began. I hardly know who was the more to blame for it. Stephen really did begin it, but I suppose I provoked him by some foolishness of mine. He had a rival or two, you see. I was vain and coquettish and liked to tease him a little. He was a very high-strung, sensitive fellow. Well, we parted in a temper on both sides. But I thought it would all come right, and it would have if Stephen, ha Stephen hadn't come back too soon. And, my dear, I'm sorry to say... Miss Lavender dropped her voice as if she were about to confess a predilection for murdering people. That I am a dreadfully sulky person. Oh, you needn't smile. It's only too true. I do sulk. And Stephen came back before I had finished sulking. I wouldn't listen to him, and I wouldn't forgive him. And so he went away for good. He was too proud to come again. And then I sulked because he didn't come. I might have sent for him, perhaps but I couldn't humble myself to do that. I was just as proud as he was. Pride and sulkiness make a very bad combination, Anne. But I could never care for anybody else, and I didn't want to. I knew I would rather be an old maid for a thousand years than marry anybody who wasn't Stephen Irving. Well, it all seems like a dream now, of course. Oh, how sympathetic you look, Anne. As sympathetic as only seventeen can look. But don't overdo it. I'm really a very happy, contented little person in spite of my broken heart. My heart did break, if ever a heart did, when I realized that Stephen Irving was not coming back. But Anne, a broken heart in real life isn't half as dreadful as it is in the books. It's a good deal like a bad tooth, though you won't think that a very romantic simile. It takes spells of aching and gives you a sleepless night now and then. But between times it lets you enjoy life, and dreams and echoes and peanut candy, as if there were nothing the matter with it. And now you're looking disappointed. You don't think I'm half as interesting a person as you did five minutes ago when you believed I was always the prey of a tragic memory, bravely hidden beneath external smiles. That's the worst, or the best, of real life, Anne. It won't let you be miserable. It keeps on trying to make you comfortable and succeeding, even when you're determined to be unhappy and romantic. Isn't this candy scrumptious? I've eaten far more than is good for me already, but I'm going to keep recklessly on. After a little silence, Miss Lavender said abruptly, It gave me a shock to hear about Stephen's son the first, that first day you were here, Anne. I've never been able to mention him to you since, but I've wanted to know all about him. What sort of a boy is he? He is the dearest, sweetest child I ever knew, Miss Lavender. And he pretends things, too, just as you and I do. I'd like to see him, said Miss Lavender softly, as if talking to herself. I wonder if he looks anything like the little dream boy who lives here with me. 
my little dream boy. If you'd like to see Paul, I'll bring him through with me sometime, said Anne. I would like it, but not too soon. I want to get used to the thought. There might be more pain than pleasure in it, if he looked too much like Stephen, or if he didn't look enough like him. In a month's time you may bring him. Accordingly, a month later, Anne and Paul walked through the woods to the stone house and met Miss Lavender in the lane. She had not been expecting them just then, and she turned very pale. So this is Stephen's boy, she said in a low tone, taking Paul's hand and looking at him as he stood, beautiful and boyish, in his smart little fur coat and cap. He... he is very like his father. Everybody says I'm a chip off the old block, remarked Paul, quite a disease. Anne, who had been watching this little scene, drew a relieved breath. She saw that Miss Lavender and Paul had taken to each other, and that there would be no constraint or stiffness. Miss Lavender was a very sensible person, in spite of her dreams and romance, and after that first little betrayal she tucked her feelings out of sight and entertained Paul as brightly and naturally as if he were anybody's son who had come to see her. They all had a jolly afternoon together, and such a feast of fat things by way of supper as would have made old Mrs. Irving hold up her hands in horror, believing that Paul's digestion would be ruined forever. "'Come again, laddie,' said Miss Lavender, shaking hands with him at parting. "'You may kiss me if you like,' said Paul gravely. Miss Lavender stooped and kissed him. "'How did you know I wanted to?' she whispered. "'Because you looked at me just as my little mother used to do when she wanted to kiss me.' As a rule, I don't like to be kissed. Boys don't. You know, Miss Lewis. But I think I rather like to have you kiss me. And of course, I'll come to see you again. I think I'd like to have you for a particular friend of mine if you don't object. I... I don't think I shall object, said Mrs. L Miss Lavender. She turned and went in very quickly. But a moment later, she was waving a gay and smiling goodbye to them from the window. I like Miss Lavender announced Paul as they walked through the beech woods. I like the way she looked at me, and I like her stone house, and I like Charlotta the Fourth. I wish Grandma Irving had a Charlotta the Fourth instead of Mary Joe. I feel sure Charlotta the Fourth wouldn't think I was wrong in my upper story when I told her what I think about things. Wasn't that a splendid tea we had, teacher? Grandma says a boy shouldn't be thinking about what he gets to eat, but he can't help it sometimes when he is real hungry. You know, teacher. I don't think Miss Lavender would make a boy eat porridge for breakfast if he didn't like it. She'd get things for him he did like. But of course, Paul was nothing if not fair-minded. That mightn't be very good for him. It's very nice for a change, though, teacher. You know. Chapter 24 A Prophet in His Own Country One May Day Avonlea folks were mildly excited over some Avonlea notes, signed Observer, which appeared in the Charlottetown Daily Enterprise. Gossip ascribed the authorship thereof to Charlie Sloane, partly because the said Charlie had indulged in similar literary flights in times past, and partly because one of the notes seemed to embody a sneer at Gilbert Blythe. Avonlea juvenile society persisted in regarding Gilbert Blythe and Charlie Sloane as rivals in the good graces of a certain damsel with gray eyes and an imagination. Gossip, as usual, was wrong. 
Gilbert Blythe, aided and abetted by Anne, had written the notes, putting in the one about himself as a blind. Only two of the notes have any bearing on this history. Rumor has it that there will be a wedding in our village ere the daisies are in bloom. A new and highly respected citizen will lead to the hymenaeal altar one of our most popular ladies. Uncle Abe, our well-known weather prophet, predicts a violent storm of thunder and lightning for the evening of the 23rd of May, beginning at 7 o'clock sharp. The area of the storm will extend over the greater part of the province. People traveling that evening will do well to take umbrellas and mackintoshes with them. Uncle Abe really has predicted a storm for some time this spring, said Gilbert. But do you suppose Mr. Harrison really does go to see Isabella Andrews? No, said Anne, laughing. I'm sure he only goes to play checkers with Mr. Harmon Andrews. But Mrs. Lynde says she knows Isabella Andrews must be going to get married. She's in such good spirits this spring. Poor old Uncle Abe felt rather indignant over the notes. He suspected that observer was making fun of him. He angrily denied having assigned any particular date for his storm, but nobody believed him. Life in Avonlea continued on the smooth and even tenor of its way. The planting was put in. The improvers celebrated an Arbor Day. Each improver set out, or caused to be set out, five ornamental trees. As the society now numbered 40 members, this meant a total of 200 young trees. Early oats greened over the red fields. Apple orchards flung great blossoming arms about the farmhouses, and the Snow Queen adorned itself as a bride for her husband. Anne liked to sleep with her window open and let the cherry fragrance blow over her face all night. She thought it very poetical. Marilla thought she was risking her life. Thanksgiving should be celebrated in the spring, said Anne one evening to Marilla, as they sat on the front doorsteps and listened to the silver-sweet chorus of the frogs. I think it would be ever so much better than having it in November, when everything is dead or asleep. Then you have to remember to be thankful. But in May, one simply can't help being thankful. That they are alive, if for nothing else. I feel exactly as Eve must have felt in the Garden of Eden before the trouble began. Is that grass in the hollow green or golden? It seems to me, Marilla, that a pearl of a day like this, when the blossoms are out and the winds don't know where to blow from next for sheer crazy delight, must be pretty near as good as heaven. Marilla looked scandalized and glanced apprehensively around to make sure the twins were not within earshot. They came round the corner of the house just then. "'Ain't it an awful nice-smelling evening?' asked Davy, sniffing delightedly as he swung a hoe in his grimy hands. He had been working in his garden. That spring, Marilla, by way of turning Davy's passion for reveling in mud and clay into useful channels, had given him and Dora a small plot of ground for, for a garden. Both had eagerly gone to work in a characteristic fashion. Dora planted, weeded, and watered carefully, systematically, and dispassionately. As a result, her plot was already green with prim, orderly little rows of vegetables and annuals. Davy, however, worked with more zeal than discretion. He dug and hoed and raked and watered and transplanted so energetically that his seeds had no chance for their lives. "'How's your garden coming on, Davy boy?' asked Anne. "'Kind of slow,' said Davy with a sigh. I don't know why the things don't grow better. Milty Bolter says I must have planted them in the dark of the moon, and that's the whole trouble. He says you must never sow seeds or kill pork or cut your hair or do any important thing in the wrong time of the moon. Is that true, Anne? I want to know. 
Maybe if you didn't pull your plants up by the roots every other day to see how they're getting on at the other end, they'd do better, said Marilla sarcastically. I only pulled six of them up, protested Davy. I wanted to see if there was grubs at the roots. Milty Bolter says if it wasn't the moon's fault, it must be grubs. But I only found one grub. He was a great big, juicy, curly grub. I put him on a stone and got another stone and smashed him flat. He made a jolly squish, I tell you. I was sorry there wasn't more of them. Dora's garden was planted same time as mine, and her things are growing all right. It can't be the moon, Davy concluded in a reflective tone. Marilla, look at that apple tree, said Anne. Why, the thing is human. It is reaching out long arms to pick its own pink skirts daintily up and provoke us to admiration. Those yellow duchess trees always bear well, said Marilla complacently. That tree will be loaded this year. I'm real glad. They're great for pies. But neither Marilla nor Anne nor anybody else was fated to make pies out of yellow duchess apples that year. The 23rd of May came, an unseasonably warm day, as none realized more keenly than Anne and her little beehive of pupils sweltering over fractions and syntax in the Avonlea schoolroom. A hot breeze blew all the forenoon, but afternoon hour it died away into a heavy stillness. At half-past three, Anne heard a low rumble of thunder. She promptly dismissed school at once, so that the children might get home before the storm came. As they went out to the playground, Anne perceived a certain shadow and gloom over the world, in spite of the fact that the sun was still shining brightly. Annetta Bell caught her hand nervously. Oh, teacher, look at that awful cloud! Anne looked and gave an exclamation of dismay. In the northwest, a mass of cloud, such as she had never in all her life beheld before, was rapidly rolling up. It was dead black, save where its curled and fringed edges showed a ghastly livid white. There was something about it, about it indescribably menacing as it gloomed up in the clear blue sky. Now and again a bolt of lightning shot across it, followed by a savage growl. It hung so low that it almost seemed to be touching the tops of the wooded hills. Mr. Harmon Andrews came clattering up the hill in his truck wagon, urging his team of greys to their utmost speed. He pulled them to a halt opposite the school. "'Guess Uncle Abe's hit it for once in his life, Anne,' he shouted. "'His storm's coming a little ahead of time. Did you ever see the like of that cloud? Here, all you young ones, that are going my way, pile in. And those that ain't, scoot for the post office if you've more than a quarter of a mile to go.' And stay there till the shower's over. Anne caught Davy and Dora by the hands and flew down the hill along the birch path and past Violet Vale and Willowmere as fast as the twins' fat legs could go. They reached Green Gables not a moment too soon and were joined at the door by Marilla, who had been hustling her ducks and chickens under shelter. As they dashed into the kitchen, the light seemed to vanish, as if blown out by some mighty breath. The awful cloud rolled over the sun, and a darkness as of late twilight fell across the world. At the same moment, with a crash of thunder and a blinding glare of lightning, the hail swooped down and blotted the landscape out in one white fury. Through all the clamor of the storm came the thud of torn branches striking the house, and the sharp crack of, bre of breaking glass. In three minutes, every pane in the west and north windows was broken, and the hail poured in through the apertures, covering the floor with stones, the smallest of which was as big as a hen's egg. For three quarters of an hour, the storm raged unabated, and no one who underwent it ever forgot it. 
Marilla, for once in her life shaken out of her composure by sheer terror, knelt by her rocking chair in a corner of the kitchen, gasping and sobbing between the deafening thunder peals. Anne, white as paper, had dragged the sofa away from the window and sat on it with a twin on either side. Davy, at the first crash, had howled, Anne, Anne, is it the judgment day? Anne, Anne, I never meant to be naughty. And then buried his face in Anne's lap and kept it there, his little body quivering. Dora, somewhat pale but quite composed, sat with her hand clasped in Anne's, quiet and motionless. It is doubtful if an earthquake would have disturbed Dora. Then, almost as suddenly as it began, the storm ceased. The hail stopped, the thunder rolled and muttered away to the eastward, and the sun burst out merry and radiant over a world so changed that it seemed an absurd thing to think that a scant three-quarters of an hour could have effected such a transformation. Marilla rose from her knees, weak and trembling, and dropped on her rocker. Her face was haggard, and she looked ten years older. "'Have we all come out of that alive?' she asked solemnly. "'You bet we have,' piped David cheerfully, quite his own man again. "'I wasn't a bit scared, either. Only just at the first. It come on a fellow so sudden. I made up my mind quick as a wink that I wouldn't fight Teddy Sloan Monday as I'd promised. But now maybe I will.' "'Say, Dora, was you scared?' "'Yes, I was a little scared,' said Dora primly, "'but I held tight to Anne's hand and said my prayers over and over again.' "'Well, I'd have said my prayers, too, if, if, if I'd thought of it,' said Davy. "'But,' he added triumphantly, "'you see, I came through just as safe as you for all I didn't say them.' Anne got Marilla a glass full of her potent current wine. How potent it was, Anne in her earlier days had had all too good reason to know and then went to the door to look out on the strange scene. Far and wide was a white carpet, knee-deep of hailstones. Drifts of them were heaped up under the eaves and on the steps. When, three or four days later, those hailstones melted, the havoc they had wrought was plainly seen, for every green growing thing in field or garden was cut off. Not only was every blossom stripped from the apple trees, but great boughs and branches were wrenched away and out of the two hundred trees set out by the improvers, by far the greater number were snapped off or torn to shreds. "'Can it possibly be the same world it was an hour ago?' asked De Anne dazedly. "'It must have taken longer than that to play such havoc.' "'The like of this has never been known in Prince Edward Island,' said Marilla. "'Never. I remember when I was a girl there was a bad storm, but it was nothing to this.' We'll hear of terrible destruction, you may be sure. I do hope none of the children were caught out in it, murmured Anne anxiously. As it was discovered later, none of the children had been, since all those who had any distance to go had taken Mr. Andrews's excellent advice and sought refuge at the post office. There comes John Henry Carter, said Marilla. John Henry came wading through the hailstones with a rather scared grin. Oh, ain't this awful, Miss Cuthbert? Mr. Harrison sent me over to see if you had come out all right. We're none of us killed, said Marilla grimly, and none of the buildings was struck. I hope you got off equally well. Yes'm. Not quite so well, ma'am. We was struck. The lightning knocked over the kitchen chimney and come down the flue and knocked over Ginger's cage and tore a hole in the floor and went into the cellar. Yes'm. Was Ginger hurt? queried Anne. Yes'm. He was hurt pretty bad. He was killed. 
later on Anne went over to comfort Mr. Harrison. She found him sitting by the table, stroking Ginger's gay, dead body with a trembling hand. Poor Ginger won't call you any more names, Anne, he said mournfully. Anne could never have imagined herself crying on Ginger's account, but the tears came into her eyes. He was all the company I had, Anne, and now he's dead. Well, well, I'm an old fool to care so much. I'll let on I don't care. I know you're going to say something sympathetic as soon as I stop talking, but don't. If you did, I'd cry like a baby. Hasn't this been a terrible storm? I guess folks won't laugh at Uncle Abe's predictions again. Seems as if all the storms that he's been prophesying all his life that never happened came all at once. Beats all how he struck the very day, though, doesn't it? Look at the mess we have here. I must hustle around and get some boards to patch up that hole in the floor. Avonlea folks did nothing the next day but visit each other and compare damages. The roads were impassable for wheels by reason of the hailstones, so they walked or rode on horseback. The mail came late with ill tidings from all over the province. Houses had been struck, people killed and injured. The whole telephone and telegraph system had been disorganized, and any number of young stock exposed in the fields had perished. Uncle Abe waded out to the blacksmith's forge early in the morning and spent the whole day there. It was Uncle Abe's hour of triumph, and he enjoyed it to the full. It would be doing Uncle Abe an injustice to say that he was glad the storm had happened, but since it had to be, he was very glad he had predicted it. To the very day, too. Uncle Abe forgot that he had ever denied setting the day. As for the trifling discrepancy in the hour, that was nothing. Gilbert arrived at Green Gables in the evening and found Marilla and Anne busily engaged in nailing strips of oilcloth over the broken windows. "'Goodness only knows when we'll get glass for them,' said Marilla. "'Mr. Barry went over to Carmody this afternoon, and not a pain could he get for love or money. Lawson and Blair were cleaned out by the Carmody people at by ten o'clock. Was the storm bad at White Sands, Gilbert?' "'I should say so.' I was caught in the school with all the children, and I thought some of them would go mad with fright. Three of them fainted, and two girls took hysterics, and Tommy Blewett did nothing but shriek at the top of his voice the whole time. I only squealed once, said Davy proudly. My garden was all smashed flat, he continued mournfully. But so was Dora's, he added in a tone which indicated that there was yet balm in Gilead. Anne came running down from the west gable. Oh, Gilbert, have you heard the news? Mr. Levi Bolter's old house was struck and burned to the ground. It seems to me that I'm dreadfully wicked to be feel glad over that, when so much damage has been done. Mr. Bolter says he believes the AVIS magicked up that storm on purpose. Well, one thing is certain, said Gilbert, laughing. Observer has made Uncle Abe's reputation as a weather prophet. Uncle Abe's storm will go down in local history. It is a most extraordinary coincidence that it should have come on the very day we selected. I actually have a half-guilty feeling, as if I really had magicked it up. Well, we may as well rejoice over the old house being removed, for there's not much to rejoice over where our young trees are concerned. Not ten of them have escaped. Ah, well, we'll just have to plant them over again next spring, said Anne philosophically. That is one good thing about this world. There are always sure to be more springs. And that's where we will stop for today.
So thank you very much again for listening to Rob Reads to You. Come back next time. We'll continue on with Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Thank you and have a good night, everyone.